You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. After a week off, welcome back to the next edition of the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. All anybody wants to talk about these days are the New York Mets. They're 83-62, and 62, tied with the Dodgers and Cubs for the fourth best record in baseball. And obviously everybody wants to talk about Uenis Cespedes. But I think that's not totally fair because this has really been a team effort. We looked at exit velocity for the non-Cespedes Mets after being 88, 89 miles an hour in April and July, up to over 90 in August, up to 92 in September. This entire team has really been you know, going off for the last couple of weeks. And so my first question for Jim Duquette, former exec for the Mets and the O's, co-host of Power Alley on Sirius XM Radio. Jim, is Cespedes getting too much credit for the Mets turnaround? <laughs> yeah, hey, Mike. Yeah, I know what... Um... I actually think you know he, he's definitely had an impact. We know that. We know what he's been like in the middle of the line. We know he's what he's done. But but I do think he has gotten you know too much of the of the credit. I mean, if you look up and down that lineup now, it is much deeper. Uh, really, I mean, Curtis Granish, and you could sit there and say it's been the team MVP over the course of the full season of him being healthy and the way he's swung the bats since since the end of April. We know when Darno is in the lineup, how good he is. David Wright coming back hasn't really skipped a beat. So you look at them, you look at Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe, you know, this latest stretch is really without the contributions of Lucas Duda. I mean, Murphy has been, you know, pretty consistent. I mean, it's it's a really well-balanced lineup. I think Cespedes just kind of, you know, takes the pressure off of everybody so you don't have to rely on one guy. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up Curtis Granderson because he was actually the next guy on the list I wanted to bring up. Uh, by wins above replacement, by weighted runs created, he's basically had an identical season to Chris Bryant with maybe about a fifth of the fanfare. Do you think Mets fans are overlooking him a little bit just because he's maybe not getting the big RBI totals, big homer totals he used to have? I, I think they do because, you know, when they when the money was spent on him, you expected him to be more of a run, let's say a run producer, than, than manufacturing runs. And he's done a little bit of both. I mean, you know, you mentioned... You know, wins above replacement. That, that, you know, you you look at what he's done in terms of home runs in the leadoff spot. Uh, you know, and he's had a number of key uh, uh, runs batted in. You you name it. I mean, his approach getting on base has been tremendous. So I, I think all those things combined have made him as valuable uh, of a Met that you I think that you'll find out there. And, that, and really, when you look at how he's been swung the bat lately against left-handed pitchers, that's key. He hits, uh, well, one key hit over the weekend um, against Atlanta, against the left hand. I mean, it seems like lately he's had those those clutch runs batted in and, and approaches, really good approaches against lefty. So, yeah, I think he's a guy that's really been below the radar. Now, undeniably, the Mets have been playing very, very well since August 1st. But when you look at the schedule they've played since then, they've only had six games against teams with winning records. And three of those were against the Nationals, who were completely falling apart. And the other three were against the Pirates, who swept the Mets. So, you know, if you're running this team, how concerned are you by that when you go into the playoffs and have to face some really actually good teams? You know, I don't get too worked up about it. Uh, you, know, you, play, you can only play the teams that you're, that you're supposed to play. It's on the schedule. That, that's number one. I, I have to give them credit for beating down the Nationals. Because even though the Nationals are falling apart now, they were still very important games at the time when they were playing them, both at the deadline and over Labor Day weekend. You're right on the Pirates. You know, those games could have gone either way. They had a couple of games blown late with the bullpens. So, you know, I think I think the main thing that I, if I were, you know, in Sandy Alderson's shoes, that I'd only make sure I'm worried about is make sure that the starters are well-rested. You know, DeGrom has not been great as of lately so give him the necessary time make sure harvey's in the guard that they're well rested as they go into the postseason balance that rotation out the way you want it because their, their rotation can shut down any any offensive lineup 
And then, and then you know, worry about make sure that the bullpen is is rested too. Because I think you know we all know the bullpens for the last couple of years how much they get used in the postseason. So I think that they match up very well, and I'm not worried about the strength of the schedule. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Degrom because uh, you know 18 September innings, 11 earned runs. Uh, but we dug into it a little bit with the Statcast uh, spin rate. No change in that. Really, no change in his velocity. A 95.6 mile an hour in September, which is excellent. Uh, his batting average on, on balls and plays 418, which is obviously insanely high. So, do you look at that as signs of wear, or just maybe some bad luck over a few starts? You know, I think that there's there's probably a little bit of bad luck there. Um, it's good to know, obviously, that the spin rates are about the same. And, and that's, you know, obviously what you look for. I also look at the location of his pitches. The location hasn't been uh, uh, nearly the same. He went through this back in May, if you recall, and it was a, a little bit in his delivery. and made an adjustment, shortened up his delivery, uh, he and Dan Worthen, and everything seemed to come out of his hands really well. So I, I, I think that it's a little bit of that, maybe a little bit of uh, being tired or fatigued. He's gone, he's gone into the eighth inning. Boy, of more than anybody else in the team, maybe more than anyone else combined. I think it's been eight times going into the eighth inning over the course of the year. So it takes its toll. I think if you know they're talking about maybe skipping him or backing him off a little bit, I think that'll be exactly what he needs. Now everybody's also talking about Matt Harvey, obviously. Like, you know, what's his innings limit? Can he pitch? Can he not pitch? Actually, in September so far, his four-seam fastball, 96.4 miles an hour, which is second behind only Carlos Martinez above all pitchers with 100 thrown. Doesn't look like velocity has been an issue. How would you play this? Uh, and obviously, I know you're not in the conversations with the doctors with Scott Boris, but you know, you look at him. Maybe they're in a position where they didn't think they would actually be in the race this long to need him, and all of a sudden, it's an issue that wasn't planned for. What would your position be on this if you if you know he was your pitcher? I really like what the organization has decided to at least what they're looking at doing. I mean, they're backing him off. Obviously, he's going to get to start against the Yankees this weekend, and then from there going forward, you know, I think if you cut his his outing short, limit his innings and his pitches. I think you have a better chance of him staying sharp or fresh and 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 going from there. You know, and then on, and then look at him in the postseason and have him pitch. You know, maybe it's once a series. That's fine, but I, I think that's the area that you know I was concerned that if they, they had him start against the Yankees, then they weren't going to pitch him until maybe the last week of the season or even the first game of the postseason. That period of time, having pitched two times in the like the last three and a half weeks of the season, would have been a concern for me. Just in, you know, it'd almost be like a shutdown moment in the, in the winter time not having that intense, the intense hitting. So I like what they're doing. I think it's a, a, you know, a happy kind of uh, middle ground in, in this, and I think it'll protect them in the end. Now, a couple weeks ago, probably DeGrom and Harvey would have been in the NL Cy Young uh, conversation, and that's probably not the case anymore. But one guy who is for sure is Jake Arrieta, who you have a bit of a history with. You were working for the Orioles right. when he was drafted in 2007. Uh, and really, the, the big change for him has been that slider. In 2010, he averaged 85 miles an hour in the slider. This year, it's 90.5. He's got the second highest slider velocity behind Archimedes Caminero, which I'm bringing up just because I wanted to say Archimedes. Uh, obviously, Jim, you've, you've seen him pitch Jake Arrieta for a long time. You know, Other than the velocity, yeah. what, what's really been the difference for him? What's helped him make that step forward? You know, and I've, I've I've talked to him recently about it about all this. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, the breaking ball, the, you know, the tightness of it, the sharp break of it, the fastball velocity, the high end velocity there. But but more impo- uh, more importantly, he's gotten to a point where he, now he repeats his mechanics. He doesn't even think about them. When he was with Baltimore, when he was us, you know, he, this guy had high upside. We'd like him. I mean, he was he was uh, opening day starter. Uh, I believe at least three times. So, so it's not like you know the Orioles didn't like him, but he wasn't. He was inconsistent because uh, you know he was really more conscious on on his delivery and trying to get more movement with his two seam fastball. 
Now he's gotten to a point, Chris Bazio with the Cubs made a slight adjustment with his uh, delivery, his front foot, his front leg, and that was all he really needed. And since then, he's gotten a, a whole bunch of confidence and, yeah, the stuff plays, and obviously uh, he put himself in the Cy Young conversation. You know, the, the phrase change of scenery probably gets a little overused, but you think that applies here? Would he have not made exactly these steps forward had he stayed with the Orioles? He, he admits that the change of scenery was a big part of that, yeah. And nothing against uh, necessarily what was there with the Orioles, but I think by his own admission, he listened to a couple of, you know, too many people, and a lot of people were trying to help him and trying to fix him. Um, and so, you know, how he processed that was a little different than how he was willing to process it when he moved to Chicago and now there's only one person talking to him. And listen, it happened. It, it, I, it happened on my end the other way when I picked up Jeremy Guthrie back in the day. He, you know, he, his kind of change of scenery from Cleveland wasn't working there. We were the beneficiaries of it. Well, here with Arietta and now the Cubs have kind of worked their magic and it's worked for them. Now, I want to go back to the Mets for a minute, and uh, I want to throw some praise your way because I feel like this isn't something that gets talked about all that much. But in, when you were the general manager of the Mets, you hired uh, Ben Bomber, who was the guest on this right. show a couple of weeks ago. Fascinating guy. He's a, a PhD or PhD candidate. He's brilliant. Uh, and he kind of kick-started the, the Mets analytical department in 2004. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about, you know, why, why was that the time where it's like we need to really get into this game and, and you know, what, what led you to Ben? So, so we were looking for, you know, the, to get, get a get, we, you could see that the trend, uh, you know, in the game was starting right around 2002, 2003. We were relying a lot on statistical data, and there's more and more data coming out. Um, you, know, and, you know, fan graphs obviously was starting to come on the scene. You know, some of the some of the, the sabermetric uh, conversations that were taking place it was starting to really take hold, and we didn't have a statistical department. All we were able to do at the time was hire a couple of people. They first started out as interns, and then we got them as full-time employees, but they were entry-level positions. And Ben was one of those guys, and he headed it up. I mean, he had the statistical background. He had the, the knowledge. Uh, he had the understanding to how to build a website. And really the, the best thing that he did for us in the early going was to build our own uh, website that we could uh, manipulate data any way we wanted to and build data ourselves in-house instead of going outside and, and really being restricted to, to you know, the, the different uh, ways of looking at data that was there you know, at that time. So being able to, to really create reports the way we wanted to and then looking at it from, you know, the sabermetric side of things, it was really cutting edge at the time. And, you know, it's, it's grown, obviously, in, in, throughout the industry, but I feel good that, you know, that Ben was a big part of that. And he, he made leaps and bounds for the organization. We, we were really at the beginning front of that and really at the forefront of it uh, during, during that, you know, 2003-2004 season. And I think the fact that Ben survived through three different uh, general managers really says a lot about the work he did. Uh, so, Jim, final question for you. Let's say tomorrow you get hired to run another team. You know, based on what we now know, you know, the analytics and StatCast and everything, what would your approach be, or how would your approach differ maybe than it did the, the previous times? Well, I'll tell you, with, with today's data, you, you can make a lot of evaluation decisions based off of very statistically driven or analytically driven uh, data that you didn't have access to. And, and you know, the... the, the you could shy away from maybe the scouting angle a little bit, and I don't think that's necessarily the right way to do it, too. I do think, though, trying to gather, I think the most important thing in a new job, you know, going back into the front office would be how do you gather this data and how do you 
how do you process it in a way to help you make better decisions? You know, we, we weren't, we didn't have all of the data is available now, but we were starting to get some of it, and we were still at that point trying to figure out how to use it, you know, with blending it with the scouting reports to make the best decisions. So I think that's how, how I would kind of go about it and approach it. Be similar, very similar, but, but you know, obviously uh, you know, a few more uh, analytical minds maybe in the game to help, you know, break down some of this information that's available. Great stuff. Listen to Jim Duquette every morning on Sirius XM Radio, the co-host of Power Alley with Duke and Farron. Jim, thanks so much for your time. Okay, Mike. Thanks for having me. We're back on the MOB.com StackCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Uh, my next guest is a former colleague of mine at Fangraphs, and he has been kind enough to suffer some of my more ridiculous data requests, and now he's kind enough to join us here today. Jeff Zimmerman. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing okay. Jeff, uh, you wrote something interesting at the Hardball Times, and I, I have to admit I'm very biased about anything that goes up on the Hardball Times because I built the site and I love everything that goes up on it. Uh, you, you wrote about a presentation you did at Sabre Seminar in Boston a couple weeks ago called Using Batted Ball Data in Scouting. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because it kind of really gets to the heart of what we're trying to do with StatCast, which is you know use data to maybe identify some below-the-radar players. Uh, and you kind of applied that to hang times and average exit velocity. And I think you started with, uh, with, with batting practice. Is that right? Yeah, the... Um... It was, I hate to say, almost by accident. I had seen a scout timing fly balls at a game, and he was always just like, oh, I'm just going to keep track of anything that's like over six. It was kind of a um, number that, like I said, he just kind of had made up, and he just was like, oh, I was just going to keep track of it. And at the tournament, it was there was no batting practice. It was the Missouri Valley, and all their batting practice was in the cage beforehand, the Missouri Valley tournament. So it was one of these, oh, I'll just, you know, kind of just stuck it in the back of my head. And then I saw it mentioned a couple other times um, since then. So I um, decided I would just look at it. And since I was dealing with the date at the time with just the fly ball times, it was just as easy. Like, I'm just going to do the batted ball velocity at the same time. And so what you did was you applied that to the, uh, the 20 to 80 scouting scale, right? So the idea is that if you have a, an exit velocity over this amount, then maybe that'll get you a 70 on the, the scouting scale, and that'll kind of help us identify you know, some of these younger players, maybe even amateur players, because I, I know some showcase events are starting to track uh, exit velocity. Right, and yeah, and I've known some, and that's actually one of my um, points to look at, is like trying to get some numbers between, like, this is how hard a guy hits during batting practice, and does he actually swing harder knowing that he can... Um, um, Sorry about my clock there. The um, knowing that um, you know it's just a weak pitch coming in and you swing as hard as he can, or is it actually harder during a game when the pitcher is throwing harder, and he'll actually can get the ball to you know use some of the momentum to um, that, the, that the ball is flying at to also hit out farther. So do you think that, that you know, we can apply this to maybe uh, collegiate leagues? Like I, I saw you wrote at Baseball America recently uh, a little bit about scouting the Jayhawk League. And for people who don't know that, it's a, it's a Kansas summer college league. Uh, guys like Pujols and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens have, have played there. Uh, it sent a lot of guys to the pros. Uh, you know, I don't know that they are actually tracking exit velocity yet or hang time yet, but I assume you, know, you're, you don't come up from a traditional scouting background. So I imagine that as you're watching these games, that's kind of the, the sort of things you're looking for, right? Yeah, and... Um... Yeah, definitely not from the traditional side of things. And I've doing the Jayhawk League and um, done another um, high school um, website called Prep Baseball Report. It looks at 
some of the high school kids and stuff. And on some of those events, they'll actually have the exit velocity. And um, in none of the events of actually what the high school kids, I think this year, have actually, or very few have even hit 100 miles an hour on their exit velocities. And it's fairly common for almost every major leaguer to at least have that as a milestone to make. Because um, I think when in my presentation, only one person hadn't had an exit velocity of 100 miles an hour, and it was Tyler Flowers. But generally, every other hitter has. There's some pitchers that haven't, but I mean, most of those are just happy to make contact, I think, at times. So, Jeff, you are known, if you're known for anything online, for you know a couple of different things. Like you've got a, at your baseball heat map site, you're kind of the go-to for, for batted ball distance. Uh, you've got a great database of disabled list information and Tommy John surgery, uh, and I think also shift data, and that's, that's kind of what I want to talk about next. When do you think we've really reached the tipping point as far as shifts? We've gone from about 2,500 in 2010 to over 13,000 last year, uh, even more than that this year. I don't have the exact number. Uh, there's got to be a certain point where it's like we've we've sort of reached max capacity for shifts, wouldn't you say? Uh, it may be right now, but it's t- um, I think Teams may see more. I think what's happening, and I was kind of waiting for the end of the data, end of year data, to kind of look at it. But there are players like David Ortiz that it really affects. But then there's other players that have some speed, like Ortiz. You know, he can't lay down the bunt and make it to first. But there are other players that can. That there's diminishing returns to this group of players that it's like maybe, maybe, maybe they shouldn't. And I think that's. We're starting to get to some of those where it's like, oh, this player really pulls the ball, so we should shift him. But as soon as the player sees that you're shifting him, he just hits it the other way. Like they're able to make that adjustment or lay down the bunt and get to that. And I think we're starting to see that a lot more. I don't know if it's at the tipping point, and possibly on the sheer numbers, they still may go up, as I still think some teams haven't totally embraced the amount that they should be. I think there's definitely some teams that are at the you know the most efficient shift data. I think some on certain players, but I think some teams will catch up, and maybe some will go down. Like just as the manager changes or philosophies change, I could kind of see that you know kind of being up and down a little bit. But I think the players are getting identified, teams are shifting, the ones that really need to, and. Um, like, I, I think every additional shift is going to have less and less of an effect. I think, like, the top 20 or 30 players really had an effect on them, and it's just, it has gone down since then. Now, you've also written about the relationship between uh, increased velocity and pitcher arm injuries. Uh, this is, I think, earlier this year at the Hardball Times. Uh, and I think everybody knows, just anecdotally, that pitchers are throwing harder. But this is really stunning, uh, this number you had. In 2002, uh, less than 50% of pitchers had a fastball, an average fastball over 90, and now it's more than three quarters. And uh, I think people kind of look at that and they say, well, guys are throwing harder, and that leads to more injuries. But what you found is it's not so much that there's more injuries overall, but it's just, it's more localized in the elbow uh, and less in the shoulder due to sh- shoulder strengthening. Uh, and I, I kind of thought that was a, a fascinating point of view. Do you still think that holds up? Um, it has. I I'm actually can't wait to get a hold of this year's data to see if the trend still continues. But it was um, about six or seven years ago is actually when the pitcher arm injuries maxed because you were having the, really the Tommy Johns were starting and people were still having elbow issues. And um, 
teams have really worked on the elbows, which may be also part of the problem is that they've really strengthened them up. They've actually added velocity using those muscles, and just something has to give at some point. And right now it's the elbows because people really can't build those up. So um, I actually wouldn't be surprised if the numbers are up, but just kind of looking at the Tommy John um, numbers from this year, I think it, they may be um, there'll be less elbow injury related days lost. Well, when you do, it's just, when, it's just less this year than it was last year. When you do go back and look at that, I want you to look at Brandon McCarthy because you know he's famous for shoulder injury after shoulder injury. You know, went on this new shoulder strengthening regimen, got up to 200 innings last year. Uh, this year, he starts throwing 95 all of a sudden, and then his elbow pops after four starts. And uh, you know, I think that's that's really interesting to see. You know, strengthen one part and put the other part at risk. It just kind of goes all down the kinetic chain. Right, and there's, um, the main issue is there's no way to really strengthen the elbow. And, I mean, it's the ligaments that are giving out there, and it was the muscles in the shoulder. And it's like, well, we can build this up. And James Shields talks about, um, a, he had a great little write-up that he said that it was like, that was a big thing for him, and it really helped the um, pitchers. And, but it's, yeah, it's, like I said, it's just tough to throw 100 miles an hour. I mean, there's people are going to come up with examples, like so-and-so didn't do it. You know, Nolan Ryan didn't do it, but it was like, there's a lot of other pitchers I've talked to that it's like, yeah, this was bad. I mean, it was like, <laughs> we were, what I was doing was just not good for me. Jeff, I know you're a Royals guy, so we got to finish you off with two Kansas City questions here. Uh, one of the things I note you do is is a couple of times a week you come out with velocity risers or or, or fallers as far as pitchers who have added or lost velocity. You know exactly where I'm at. <laughs> Greg Holland, he's thrown 307 career Major League Baseball games, and the last three, including a 10-day layoff, have been the three lowest average uh, average pitch velocity. So the question is, are you very worried or extremely worried? Extremely. <laughs> it's and the worst is he started the season down like one one and a half. It was quite a bit, and it's just been just continuously downhill. I mean, it's there's maybe been a little up here and there, but it's pitches. I think it's like over four miles an hour he's lost this year, in like the last three games compared to the beginning or from the last games last year. But it's been a steady decline. He had a rough stretch last year. Um, he's still able to throw that slider, so and he's increased the usage of it, and I think he's just relying upon it. And I would not be surprised one bit at some point this offseason he's having, he's just hiding some injury and going to be out next year or part, for part or all of the season. No, it would Ho- not surprise anyone, I don't think, one bit. With, with Holland, there's something obvious to look at. His velocity is down. His spin rate is down. Can't really say the same thing for Johnny Cueto, and I think that's what's most frustrating is that he's getting hit really hard, and there's really nothing obvious in the data that, that stands out. Uh, have you looked at him at all? Have you seen anything that you know, kind of tells you what's going on with him? I have and just haven't found anything. I don't want to quote some numbers, but I know like his strikeout rates were the same. I have some idea. I think it was like he's with the Royals. He's had like 20 strikeouts, four walks, or something like that. Or like I said the numbers are seem to be fine over these last few starts with everything but how hard he's being hit. And um, I don't know the rest of the guys. I mean, truthfully, there's nothing else the Royals can really do. I mean, it's. You've got Cueto, you got Ventura, and then after that, it's Duppy, Medlin, um, Volquez. I mean, not anyone really gives you great feelings. I mean, if you're going to take your chances in the playoffs, I know it's going to be with Cueto. I mean, all the rest of them could be just as bad. They're not going to bring Guthrie back or use Chris Young or 
Yeah, it's, it's bad when the uh, diagnosis for the, the new ace is basically the baseball version of the shrug emoji because no one seems to really understand what's going on. Uh, Jeff Zimmerman, thanks so much for your time. Follow Jeff at Fangraphs, BaseballHeatMaps.com, TheHardballTimes.com. Uh, Jeff's got a lot of great data that he, he puts out there uh, several times a week. Jeff, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks to my guest, Jeff Zimmerman of Fangraphs and Jim Duquette of SiriusXM Radio. Catch you next week.